Hello, and thanks for joining me for another edition of the Quadcast, a podcast mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, but is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Think of the Quadcast as your 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. And make sure to stop by my new and improved website, www.quadcast.org, for much needed information about the show and archived episodes. On last week's show, we highlighted the great work that Alan T. Brown, Director of Public Impact at the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation, has done and continues to do on behalf of the disabled community. Thank you again, Alan, for joining me, and keep up the great work, my friend. So did you hear me on the Todd Leonard show on Sunday? No, I don't blame you if you didn't. It was very early, and it was Father's Day after all. But if you are still interested, you can find it archived on the Todd Leonard Show's Facebook page. I want to thank Todd again for having me and highlighting this program. I am hoping that the appearance will give us a little more traction and continue our positive momentum. And now on to this week's show, one that I am affectionately calling Going to the Dogs. As a child, I always wanted to have a dog of my own. Unfortunately, I was an asthmatic and had some serious breathing issues from time to time. I can recall moments during bad attacks when my parents had to bring me to the emergency room for a shot of adrenaline just to keep me going. Needless to say, dogs were out of the question in the McAlevey household because I was very allergic to them. And boy, was that tough because most of my good friends had them. One in particular had my favorite dog of all time. Stephen Carolanza has been a friend since my grammar school days at Glenwood School. He had this amazing golden retriever named Casey. Many days, Casey would walk to school in the morning with Stephen and all the other children and then wait for us by the door until recess. Talk about man's best friend. Casey was all of ours. And now by middle school, sleepovers were starting to happen. And not only did Stephen have an awesome dog, he had an awesome house as well, and I wanted to spend the night there with friends. After some reluctance, my parents said yes. But like clockwork, within three hours or so, I was calling them to come and pick me up because I was wheezing and coughing, my eyes were running, I was downright miserable. Well, we tried this a couple of other times over the years, but I just couldn't handle staying around the dog. Thank goodness I've outgrown this condition. And following my accident, the idea of getting a dog took on a whole new meaning. I recall some of my PTs and OTs telling me that I might be a good candidate for an assistance dog someday. They explained how these tremendous animals could do many commands, such as turning on lights, picking items up off the floor, opening doors and drawers, and more. The thought was that with my very limited use of arms, not only would the dog be a tremendous advocate in helping me, but also become a trusted companion. They advised me to start the process sooner rather than later, because not only does it take a very long time, but the companies are very selective and not everyone is successful. Well, ever the procrastinator, I waited some 25 years before I took them up on the suggestion and finally got around to filling out a Canine Companions for Independence application online in the summer of 2018. I am happy to report that I have made it through many of their protocols to date and am on the waiting list for their intensive team training down the road. 
Today, we are going to speak with a representative from Canine Companions to find out about this awesome organization and their amazing dogs. And we are also going to hear from a man who has graduated from team training twice already to find out how living with an assistance dog has changed his life. Following this PSA from Canine Companions for Independence, Jessica Reese, Client Services Program Manager for the company, joins us. We'll be right back. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a Canine Companions for Independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. And welcome back to the show. As you heard from the commercial that just played, Esther has a lot of training to do to become a full-fledged assistance dog for someone with a disability. Luckily, she is getting it through Canine Companions for Independence. The assistance dogs they breed, raise, and train aren't just the ears, hands, and legs of their human partners. They are also goodwill ambassadors and often their best friends. They open up new opportunities and possibilities and spread incredible joy. Joining me now to tell us all about the wonderful organization is the aforementioned Jessica Reese. Hello, Jessica. Thank you and welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. And I guess, first of all, why don't you tell us how long you've been with Canine Companions for Independence and what does a day in the life of a client services program manager like? Sure. So I've been with Canine Companions just about 16 years. Um, and uh, my day typically is pretty busy. Um, it involves uh, different aspects of the program, which is so I'm the person who when anybody's interested in applying for a dog or has questions about applying, um, they sort of come through me. I like to call myself the gatekeeper of applications uh, um, here at Canine Companions. And so basically I do a lot of different aspects. So there are people that are in um, all different steps of the application process. So there are people who have just general questions that are people that are applying for an application there are people that have submitted an application. There are people that are waiting for phone interviews. Um, I review people's medical and professional paperwork. And then there are people that are actually coming for their in-person interview. So any given day, I could be doing a little bit of all of those things. Um, and then on top of that, I am also the person that preps the individuals to come for the two weeks of training. Okay. So I, I sit down with the training staff here and we talk about, um, you know, who the applica applicant is. You know, I try, my goal is to get to know them as much as possible. So um, sometimes I will sit with the trainers and kind of like, you know, I like to say it's kind of like the newlywed game where, you know, I give them the information about the people and they give me the information about the dogs and we sort of try, try to find the matches in between. That's funny. So, 
Yeah. At any given time, I'm sort of talking about our people on our waiting list and then also prepping people to come um, for the two weeks. So, um, you know, I would say like I like to dabble in a little bit of everything. Um, And then on top of all those things, um, I do a lot of the outreach. So when we are pre or post COVID and everything is back to normal to some, some, some extent, um, I do like the big abilities expo that we have in New Jersey. So I set the booth up for three days and I talk to a lot of families and individuals about our program. I've traveled to DC to do, um, presentations, uh, about our, uh, PTSD dogs for veterans. Um, so I do a lot of the outreach as well. You wear a lot of hats, I guess is what we're getting into here. <laughs> Yes, I do wear a lot of hats. (laughs) Yes. Jessica, who is actually eligible to apply and be considered for a canine companion's dog? Yeah, sure. You know, so the the program is open to anybody who has a disability that qualifies in the sense that, you know, we serve um, individuals with physical and or cognitive disabilities. Um, So, you know, our disabilities that we serve range from you know, people with spinal cord injury to multiple sclerosis to muscular dystrophy to autism to cerebral palsy um, to, you know, individuals or kids mostly that we have like with spina bifida or um, SMA. So we do a lot of that. Um, we do also serve veterans only with PTSD. Um, you know, the things that we don't do. So we don't do any medical alert dogs or seizure alert dogs. And we really don't do dogs for people that have a psychiatric illness. So we don't place dogs for anxiety or schizophrenia um, or bipolar disorder. Okay. Um, and the only other additional thing that we don't do is we don't do dogs for people who are like visually impaired. And the reason for that is um, that dog training is so very different from what we do. Um, and you know, just the, the way that I explain it is that, um, dogs for people that are visually impaired, they are responsible for making decisions, right? Safety decisions. And we sort of train our dogs, don't make any decisions until I tell you to make a decision. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's completely opposite of what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when you're doing it like that, um, you know, you can't really sort of mix and match how you, the temperaments of the dogs and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Jessica, how many regions and campuses does Canine Companions have throughout the country? And approximately how many graduate teams will you have nationwide each year? Sure. So we have six regional centers. So I'm from the Northeast region. So I cover from the top of Maine to the bottom of Virginia. Um, We have our Southeast region, which covers just from Virginia down to Florida and a little bit over to like Louisiana. We also now have um, a region just covering Texas, the the great state of Texas, our South Central region. We have um, the North Central region, which covers sort of the mid-states. And then we have two offices in California, one in Southern California, one in Northern California. And so... Typically, on any given year, there might be anywhere between, I would probably say um, the average region serves about 60 to 70 people a year, and there's six of us. So somewhere close to about 400 dogs get placed every year. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's a great number. Can you uh, can yeah. you take us through the sequences of, I know that on your website, you do the breeding, the raising, and the training. Where much of this is done, and can you explain a little bit about what happens at each step? 
Yeah, sure. So our our breeding is taken, all the breeding it takes place at our national office out in Santa Rosa, California, where we have, um, you know, vet, veterinarians on staff and they are responsible for picking the breeder dogs and, and uh, we have specific volunteers that care for those dogs and then also care for the dogs um, as they're whelping their puppies. And so what happens is um, when dogs are giving birth, they give birth typically in someone's home and the puppies stay with their mom for up to about eight weeks. Um, and then the puppies turn into sort of our center, right, um, are at in Santa Rosa. And then what happens is the puppies are sort of like shipped across the country to different regions. So if a litter has eight puppies, there might be one or two puppies going to each region, um, depending upon what the wait lists are for puppies. Um, and then we get volunteer puppy raisers. So volunteer puppy raisers are volunteers that live all across the country. Um, and they are individuals that take the, the puppies into their homes for the first 18 to 20 months. Um, and they sort of teach all the basics, like puppy basics, how to walk nicely on leash and how to do a sit and how to do a down. And they do a lot of exposure. So they expose them to the supermarket and to loud noises and to kids and to sometimes to swimming pools and to all the kinds of things in that, that first two years of life. Um, while they have them in their home, they also go to puppy classes. Um, so they're responsible for doing training with the dogs. And then when they're about two years old, a little bit less than that, they actually turn those puppies into their closest region. So anybody that's a puppy raiser in our region would turn their dog in here. Um, and then what we would do is for the next couple of weeks, sort of do some evaluations. We do a temperament evaluation. We evaluate their medical, um, you know, their eyes, their their elbows and their hips and all those things. And okay. so those are the things that we're sort of, those. that's like the, bare basic. Sure. And then once, once a dog passes those, it's assigned like a trainer. So all the trainers here, um, at the region have, a like a string are like, I like to call it a caseload, right. Mm -hmm. Of, of dogs, um, that they are responsible for. So they're responsible for the grooming and the exercising and the training of those specific dogs. Sure. I'm sure some, then, of, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, 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 you go ahead. I was going to say, I'm sure some of the common questions you hear from folks uh, is, uh, what type of assistance dogs do you train? What breeds do you raise? And then how old are they when they graduate? I think you said they're after two years old. I think that's what you said, right? Yeah. So uh, we only use Labradors and Golden Retrievers. Um, and the dogs are, you know, they're considered large breed dogs, but they can run anywhere between 45 to about 75 or 78 pounds typically. Um, we do crossbreed them. So a lot of the dogs might be uh, a lab golden cross, although they look like a lab. Um, or you might have a dog that has long hair that looks like a golden, but it's actually still a cross between a lab and a golden. Mm -hmm. Um, and then typically what happens is when they are placed, um, in their homes with their graduate, they typically are somewhere closest to two years old or often even like a few months after their second birthday. Mm -hmm. um, as an organization, a long time ago, we actually used to use corgis um, for our, we have a hearing dog program too. Uh, but you know, that that's a, a sassy group of dogs. So we actually moved from that and are now just using labs and goldens for all of our, our placement categories. Corgis are sassy breeds, huh? 
Yeah, they're sassy. That's oh, for sure. That's so funny. But they're persist. They're persistent, which is why they were so good at hearing. Because mm-hmm. when a person is hearing impaired, how a dog alerts them is kind of just by punching them in the leg with their nose. Oh, geez. And so you have to have a dog that's not going to give up, especially if you have a person who's like a heavy sleeper and mm-hmm. they're sleeping through the firing alarm. The dog has to continuously kind of like nudge them in the arm, um, you know, and not give up. Right. <laughs> that is amazing. Again, we're being joined by Jessica Reese from the Canine Companions for Independence organization. And Jessica, please tell us how the organization is funded. Yeah. So the organization is um, almost a majority like private donation. Um, you know, we do get grants, um, which has been wonderful. And we have people who have, you know, um, been great, gracious benefactors. Um, but primarily everything is done, you know, just by people's donations. So, you know, we're happy to get a $5 donation or a $10 donation, or, um, even sometimes we'll be lucky enough. People are, so into dogs that they will leave uh, money for us in their will or their estate, which is even, you know, super um, that people would think of us even after they're gone. Um, but typically that's how we are funded. Okay. Well, that's so a- we do. We, yeah. So we do provide all of our dogs for free, which I feel like, you know, is, is something that a lot of organizations don't do. Okay. So if our listeners today would like to make a donation to Canine Companions for Independence, how can they do that and where can they do that? Yeah, sure. If anybody's interested in volunteering or getting involved um, or uh, making a donation, they can do it on our website. And our website is www.cci.org. Um, and there's a lots of ways to get involved. We do a lot of local events, um, a lot of, uh, fundraising events and, you know, just generally some people can't be puppy raisers. Um, but there's a lot of ways to get involved with the organization. No doubt. Now I know you said you're always looking for volunteers and, and puppy raisers. Tell us how big of a job that is for a family to raise a puppy. And then on, on the flip side, how hard it is, but also how fulfilling it is for them when they ultimately hand off the leash to a graduate at the end. Sure. So uh, I myself have raised two puppies. Um, so I can speak to the amount of work um, that it is. I mean, it's definitely um, hard work. Having never had any dogs myself prior to raising puppies, it was, you know, a rude awakening to be awakened at three o'clock in the morning by a screaming puppy. (laughs) But, um, you know, I do also feel like it allowed me to be part of a special community, you know, um, going to puppy classes and meeting other people. And and it is a huge support. So it wasn't like that I was raising a puppy and out there all alone and didn't know what to do. There's a lot of people, um, you have puppy play dates and puppy swim dates, and there's just a lot of things that you can do together with dogs, which is you know, all about community because I feel like Canine Companions is really all about, you know, a special community. Um, so I do feel like it was a lot of hard work, um, but it was very fulfilling. Um, unfortunately, neither one of my puppies made it. Oh. Um, however, <laughs> um, you know, uh, one of them had went on, both of them actually went on to do therapy dog work um, with the, the person who I gave them to. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of times, you know, it is a very emotional thing to know that you're, you know, giving your dog up. And I think I just kept thinking to myself that there's a person who needs this dog way more than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really like my driving force, even through like, you know, my tears of turning my dog in or, 
even getting the calls about how the dog was doing, um, you know, it was just a reminder that, you know, um, there's someone who needs my dog's skills way more than I do. And so that was really important for me. And I know is a driving force with other people when they raise puppies. I mean, we have people who have raised 18 or 19, 20 puppies and they just keep doing it. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's very yeah. selfless people that will want to do that. And I have I have a funny story to tell you. One of my first occupational therapists at Kessler Institute, Karen Cameron, she actually has a dog um, from a Florida outfit. She was working at uh, at a hospital in Florida that do- the dog did not make it through uh, mm-hmm. the protocol. And his name is Peter. And it's funny. So we call Peter the beauty school dropout. He, mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't make it through uh, through graduation. But I'm sure there's been some success stories along the way. Are there any that, that stick out in your mind? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are, I think my some of my favorite sort of uh, groups are when we have sort of um, young adults that come in, uh, you know, so typically, you know, the sort of 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds, and even sometimes a little bit older. And the reason for that is, a lot of times they come in, you know, lacking some leadership skills, lacking some self-esteem, lacking some, you know, interest or ability to speak up, you know, for themselves. And I feel like that once they come and they go through the two-week training here and we sort of, you know, force them, you know, you're going to be an adult, you're going to need to take responsibility, you're going to need to know how to talk to people about your dog and, and what they do. And so I think sometimes I've seen some transformations from, of these individuals, even while they're here during the two weeks. Um, but then I've seen some that go home with their dogs and then, you know, are, um, out in the community giving presentations about their dogs and going off to college on their own. And so, you know, it's, I think for me, the, those are some of the, like the, like uh, internal transformations that I see, um, you know, seeing people sort of grow and blossom into, you know, well adapted adults, um, with their dogs is wonderful. Absolutely. And because not only are they helping them, you know, physically they're, they're really in the word companion, they become a trusted companion and friend. I think that that is also the case, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the dog, in a lot of ways, gives them the confidence to do those things that maybe they didn't have before. No doubt. No doubt. And unfortunately, you know, we're all living under this pandemic. It's really changed. Mm-hmm. It's it's greatly affected our lives. I know from wearing masks to hand washing to social distancing. But how has this affected not only your trainers, but our four-legged friends? Sure. So, you know, we um, here on Long Island got hit pretty hard. So we did have to um, close down our center um, for, I think it was eight or nine weeks. Um, So in that time, actually, all of our dogs that were here, all 30 dogs had to be farmed out. Um, Some of them went home with their trainers. Some of them went into foster. So I feel like for some of the dogs, they might have been on like a little mini vacation. (laughs) and for some of us, it was just kind of everything sort of stopped. So, you know, we typically make placements four times a year and we do them in large groups. And so we were supposed to have a class in May that we couldn't hold. And so now that we're slowly coming back to the center and the dogs are here. So the dogs had 
maybe a little bit more of a sabbatical than they needed, right? <laughs> um, so we're trying to sort of brush up on their skills and, uh, you know, push them forward to learn new things in a shorter amount of time. Um, and then, so while we would have had like 10 or 15 families in for a class, and that would have taken two weeks, so what would have taken us two weeks before is now taking us about eight or nine weeks. Okay. So here we're doing classes back to back um, and in smaller groups. So okay. it's a little bit heavy workload for the staff here. Um, and, you know, as everything else in the world, a lot of stuff has moved on to online. So we're doing some of our training online, which for those of us like myself that are not tech savvy, uh, it's just, you know, an extra headache, but you know, it's just trying to make sure that people are getting the information they need and still staying safe. So, you know, we've, we're just trying to adjust everything to be as flexible as possible with everybody. But, you know, um, it just sort of puts us back about six or seven weeks. So we're hoping by the time the fall comes that we'll be up to date with our placements and maybe things will run a little bit more smoothly. That's terrific. Now, Jessica, is there anything that I'm missing here that you would like our listeners to know about Canine Companions for Independence? I mean, Canine Companions places, like I had said, a wide range of, of, of disabilities. Um, and our placement categories include we make service placements. And so service placements are typically dogs that work for individuals that are over the age of 18. So it's important, you know, when you go online and you're looking at our application request, which is on our website, um, you know, anybody under the age of 18 would not be applying for a service dog, right? They'd be applying for what our other category is, which is what we call a skilled companion. And a skilled companion and service dog have the same skills. The difference is that a skilled companion requires a parent, caregiver, or guardian to help out. Um, we also place facility dogs. So those are dogs that work in hospital schools or rehabs or courtrooms. Um, we place hearing dogs, hearing alert dogs. So those are dogs that alert individuals who are hearing, uh, hard of hearing or deaf um, to sounds like their name being called an alarm, a tea kettle, a cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, and then our newest category is we're also playing, placing service dogs for veterans with PTSD. That's so terrific. That yeah, <laughs> that keeps us pretty busy. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, Jessica, I want to thank you so much for your time and for coming on and sharing all of your insight with us today. Absolutely. I, it was wonderful. It's always wonderful to talk to you, John. Great. And, and hopefully I will I will get to see you sooner than later. Yes, yes. And listen, I must give a big thank you to John Bensinger, Public Relations and Marketing Coordinator for Canine Companions for Independence, for answering the zillion questions I've been emailing him for the last <laughs> week or so. And uh, he was the one that really made this a reality. And I want to thank John for that. Absolutely. I will definitely let him know for sure. I'm sure he's listening. Excellent. And Jessica, again, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks for coming on. You got it, John. And with that terrific background about Canine Companions for Independence, what do you say we hear from a graduate of their team training program? Better yet, a two-time graduate. Well, we'll do that right after this. Voted one of the top Northeast golf courses by readers of Garden State Golf, Fox Hollow Golf Club, located at 59 Fox Chase Run in Branchburg, New Jersey, offers golfers value at every turn. 
Their junior golf camps begin on Monday, July 6. Register now for this fun and safe program through the golf shop at 908-526-0010. Hey, and mention my name, Johnny Mac, and you'll receive 10% off. Get back in the swing of things. Book a tee time at foxhollowgc.com. Welcome back to the Quadcast. I'm John McAlevey. Mike Savarino was born with spina bifida, and he uses a manual wheelchair to get around. He is a successor graduate of the Canine Companions program, which he will explain to us more in detail afterwards. Mike is also the former president of the New Jersey Volunteer Chapter for Canine Companions for Independence. Mike, it is my pleasure to have you on the program. Hello and welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here with you. I guess, first of all, why don't you explain to our listeners what spina bifida is and how it makes things harder for you to do? Well, it's actually a neural tube defect where the tube that is inside of the spine that that protects the nerve cords from hitting the spine did not actually form properly. Therefore, one of my vertebrae is also missing. And because of all that being incomplete, it had then made my nerve cords stick out of, out of the spine. And uh, my spine was basically sticking out of my back, uh, just like a jerry would. Okay. Um, and uh, the, uh, that's a little bit about what okay. I actually have. And I, I'm a, a manual wheelchair uh, user pretty much full time. Okay. I had uh, myself, I had a, a fall down a flight of steps and had a severe spinal cord injury at the C3-4 level. So I'm I'm able to walk around, which is great, but um, my biggest problem is my arms, hands, and fingers don't really work all that great. And so early on, my PTs and OTs had mentioned to me, you know, John, you might be a good candidate for an assistance dog. And so that is what put the um, the little bug in my ear about maybe trying to do this. What is your first recollection of canine companions and an assistance dog? When did you think that that might be something that could help you out? Um, believe it or not, I was actually at the Abilities Expo in uh, Edison, New Jersey, um, and was just walking around or rolling around actually. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I came across a couple of different um, booths where there were service dogs, but Cannon Companions was really the one that stood out by far. Uh, uh, more than any other uh, uh, any other organization that was there. Absolutely, yeah. They've been very thorough with everything they do. So then the whole process starts. Was it that did you just apply online or did you speak to fill out some paperwork or speak to the folks there at the expo? I spoke to some of the folks there um, at the expo. They told me to go online, fill out the paperwork, um, and then send it in. That was just to basically request a uh, an application from uh, Canning Appendants. From then, from there, I filled out the application, got uh, my doctor's note uh, that basically says uh, that a dog would be beneficial to, to me. And um, after I submitted all that, I waited for, I guess it was a few months, and then I had my phone interview with Jessica Reese 
from then on, from there, I was put on the uh, waiting list for an actual dog. Yeah, for, and, you, uh, for our listeners, Mike, it, it seems like this was uh, a quick thing. You know, you fill one thing out, then you fill another thing out. You get your doctor's report. This takes a long time, though, doesn't it? I know that I started uh, my process back in the summer of 2018, and here we are in 2020, the summer of 2020. So it's it's been close to two years. Did yours take that long, or was it a little bit shorter? Uh, yes, by the time I was able to get in to get a dog it was just about a little over two years actually mm-hmm. um i had my face to face with jessica in august of 2005 and i got my first service dog in november 2007 okay now tell me about the team training um did you do yours first of all did you do it out on long island and what was, you know, what were some of the fun things that you went through and what were some of the trying things that you went through during team training? Um, yes, it, it was actually out on uh, Long Island. Uh, they were then on the co- the state college campus in Farming the Dow, uh, Long Island. Um, some of the fun things uh, that we uh, went through was, uh, you know, basically meeting new people, um, being able to, you know, just bounce off of each other, um, what you know we felt was going right, what we felt was going, you know, wrong, um, what uh, uh, what were some of the trying times was when was not during the, t- the team training, but it was actually after that, and that's only because you're bringing a dog in from a place where he or she actually knows everything and has done everything that, that they know in the past into a, a place where they've never worked, uh, they know nothing about. So it's all brand new to them. Because of that, they don't, they act like they don't really know much, but, you know, over time they get used to uh, the area and um, it becomes a, a bond that's virtually unbreakable. Yeah. Now, Mike, were you a dog person before all of this? Did your family have dogs? Did you grow up with them in the house? Yes. As a matter of fact, I I had uh, about two or three before I had gotten my first service dog. Okay. So you did have dogs growing up in the house. I, unfortunately, yeah. I grew up as a young person. I had asthma, so I was very allergic to dogs. I couldn't be around them. I always wanted to have one of my own, but I never could because I was always wheezing and coughing and couldn't breathe. So uh, thank God I outgrew them, but you had them growing up. Yes, I did. Tell me about when you get out to team training, um, you don't necessarily always bond with that first dog that they bring in. Is that right? Are there a couple that they try you with? Yes. There's about four or five different dogs that they try us with uh, to see how they uh, they will uh, respond to us. Who's you know faster? Who's slower at responding? Um, but ultimately, uh, the dog chooses you. Um, is, is that right? The dog is that what they say? The dog chooses you. Yeah, it's it. It really is the truth. Like mm-hmm. whoever um, whoever responds faster with you actually you know, gets to go home with you. Tell me about your first dog, Akira. Um, she was a. Um, she was a black lab golden crossbreed, um, who I had, had working for me for almost nine years. Um, I was, um, she had, uh, passed away like at the end of last year 
in uh, uh, November of 2019. I'm sorry to hear that. What were some okay. of the things that, that she did for you? And, and like when you bonded, um, as you said before, it's an unbreakable bond. I mean, tell me some of the things that that helped make your life easier that she was able to do for you? Well, you know, back then I really couldn't um, pick things up or carry things or even, you know, open doors or pay for things at counters, you know, because they were too high. And, you know, this dog just, you know, just came into my life and, you know, said, you know, basically looked at me as if to say, you know, here I am, I'm here for you. What do you need? That's unbelievable. You know, you you read the stories and you see the testimonials on their website, but to hear it put into words by someone who actually has had the dog, it just brings it all, you know, right to the surface. Now, how about um, when you're out in public sometimes with the dog? You know, people want to run up and pet the dog. Oh, it's a beautiful dog and I want to see your dog and he's wearing a vest. But a lot of people don't realize that the dog is working at the time. How do you sort of get that across to folks when you're out in public? You know, we just, I just tell them, you know, I'm sorry, but he's working right now. And, you know, we, um, you know, due to safety concerns, you know, for myself so that um, he needs to be able to pay attention to me. And so unfortunately right now, He's not able to be pet um, by by anybody else. I got gotcha. you. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I can see how that happens. Now, your family has a very interesting uh, angle here in that not only have you had one dog, you're on to your second assistant's dog, but you also have been puppy raisers. Tell our listeners what that was all about. Well, that was actually a pretty interesting thing. Uh, back in... 2014, uh, we had uh, decided to get into raising just to be able to thank the organization for what they did for me. Um, and I, um, and of course, this was all before I retired Akira. So the dog that we were raising was able to learn everything off of her. That is awesome. And what type of a dog did you raise? It was actually a golden. A golden. And what was her or his name? His name was Lars. Lars. Now, you know, I have always, as I told you before, I've always wanted to have a dog of my own. And I was born, my birthday is January 8th. And that is also shared with Elvis Presley. And so I always told people when I was a kid, I want to have a dog someday named Elvis. Unfortunately, one thing you're not allowed to do is name your dog, right? The ones that you train with are already, they already have their name. So you have to sort of deal with whatever one you get, right? They do come with their names, but um, the organization had told me uh, right before I left that I can uh, rename if I had wanted to. Um, but I, I did not do that for either of the dogs that I had. Yeah, that's probably best because by that point, they're two years old, I think, right, uh, Mike? And, and they sort of know what their name is. That would sort of be odd to to have somebody uh, calling you a different name in a different house and a different thing. So that would, uh, that would certainly be different. Tell us how uh, fulfilling it was when Lars was ready to be handed off to someone when he graduated. Actually, unfortunately, he failed due to allergies. Oh boy! Yeah. So, and so that was actually a, a pretty, you know, upsetting thing for us, you know, because we put all this time into into the uh, uh, him. Okay. And so, and what then, what happened with him now? Um, uh, we just got uh, the medication from the vet, but he got released from the program. Okay. Um, and we took him back. Okay. So, do you still have him now? Yes, I do. 
Oh, that's terrific. So you've got a couple of dogs now. Tell us, how was your second round of team training when you uh, went back to Long Island to Canine Companions and were given Webster? You know, it was very, very different from the first round. Um, It was uh, relaxing and just very encouraging. Uh, Where uh, they were either way... um, you know, from the first to the second, they were always really encouraging to the uh, to the potential graduates. Sure. And did the but, did the potential graduates sort of look up to you because you've already been through this? You're sort of a veteran at this. Yes. Uh, yeah. There was probably about four. Um, yeah, four in total that were uh, repeat graduates, just like myself. Um, but the rest of them really did look up to um, either them or myself. I can imagine. Now, do you keep in touch with any of your friends that you graduated with? Did you make uh, bonds that uh, through the dogs and through the training that you keep up with to this day? In, in contact with, um, if not all, it's definitely the majority of. That's terrific. And do any of them live uh, live near you? I know I'm in New Jersey, and I know you're in New Jersey as well. Do any of them live close by that you get together? Um, the closest that I have is uh, is in uh, Long Island. What training do you still do, like either on a daily or a weekly basis, um, with Webster? Do they make you keep up on that stuff? You know, his work is every day, so we keep uh, we keep up with our skills every single day. Even if I even if I don't really need him to do um, something, I I will you know set up just like a, a little mock training session just to you know keep his skills sharp. And uh, there's uh, at least once or twice a month where I actually. I try to train something new into him. Um, you know, for example, it's like maybe getting a specific item, and then you know, throughout that month, I will you know work into di- work distance into uh, that particular uh, that thing. That's terrific. And and tell me before we go, tell me about being the president, the former president of the New Jersey Volunteer Chapter for Canine Companions. You know, it was actually pretty interesting. Where I I, I did get to meet a lot of new people. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of work together, um, at the, uh, uh, street fairs were the, uh, the biggest thing that we did. It, it, yeah, it was a very interesting thing to go through for the two or three years that I had it. Wow. You had a two or three, te- you had a couple of terms, huh? A term is actually like t- uh, two years. Okay. Mike Savarino, I want to thank you for coming on and shedding a little light on what it's like to live with an assistance dog and I hopefully will get a chance to meet you someday and hopefully I will have one of my own and uh, we can compare notes together sometime. I'm looking forward to it. Terrific. Mike, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Doggone it. That'll do it for this week's show. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Thank you again to Jessica Reese and John Bensinger at Canine Companions for Independence. Your knowledge, help, and cooperation are so appreciated. Thank you also to Mike Savarino for sharing your insights on just what it's like to have a four-legged companion, and I do look forward to meeting you someday, my friend. 
I am still fine-tuning next week's show. And speaking of fine-tuning, yours truly is heading in for some as I begin OT and PT three days a week at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation next week. However, the hope is that Senior Medical Officer of Kessler West Orange's campus, Director of their Spinal Cord Injury Program, my doctor for many years, and above all, my friend, Dr. Stephen Kirschblum, will be my guest. Fingers crossed on this one, as I know he's a very busy man. Thanks again to Chris Parapesco at Sound Lounge in New York City. You make even a novice like me sound professional. Now, if there is someone you would like me to interview, please log on to my website at www.quadcast.org and let me know. Once again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I-